Hello and welcome to How to Launch an Industry, brought to you by Marku and Aurora. I am Jehan Marku, your lead moderator for the group discussion today. And as usual, I am joined by Dr. Nigam Aurora. Good morning, everybody. We are also joined by some other friends this week, research professor Sarah Jane Ward. Hi, everybody. Glad to be back. And we have a new person joining the group today, public health researcher Jason Sarush. Hey, hey. Glad to be here. Awesome. Uh, we are excited about Jason being on the show. He was lead author of the edible cannabis product labeling study that we discussed and loved. And we hope, Jason, that you have fun today and can share your public health insights on today's topics. You know, we have a great show. We'll be talking about Delta 8 THC, yeast made psilocybin, some pop science coverage on psychedelics and depression related issues. And for a rapid science conversation, we will discuss one article on how psychedelic ceremonial use may decrease drug use, but whether it decreases dangerous drug use behaviors such as binge use or, or other maladaptive coping mechanisms, I'm not sure that that has really been addressed. It's a question I hope we can trip out on. And time permitting, our second article will be a study on consumer knowledge about cannabis labels. Specifically, do consumers know what the universal label is? The answer may or may not shock you, but the implications of this data are, are really more surprising than the findings. And of course, we'll end this episode with a game that will test your critical thinking abilities on today's subject, which is the role of hemp in early warfare. Our first news item today comes from AboveTheLaw.com in a story I call Delta 8 THC or Delta Wait a Minute THC. So Above the Law has a marijuana blog, and they have lawyers post stuff there. And, and one lawyer posted an argument against uh, the DEA's interpretation of Delta 8 THC regarding their interim rule. Some marketing sources are calling Delta 8 THC the hottest cannabinoid currently found in the U.S. market. And like all cannabinoids, Delta 8 THC would probably be treated as a Schedule One controlled substance by the DEA. So given the similarities between Delta-8 and Delta-9 THC's chemical structure, molecular formula, molecular weight, and potentially their psychoactive effects, the DEA's position of historically controlling all forms of THC, their interim rule, only confirms what many of us suspected, that hemp-derived cannabinoids with psychoactive effects, even if less potent than those of Delta-9 THC, would be deemed unlawful by federal enforcement groups. The author states, quote, it is abundantly clear that through this rule that the DEA is attempting to impede on the hemp industry, so it is vital for hemp stakeholders to submit their comment by October 20th, call to action everybody, to halt the DEA and help the hemp industry follow its course and succeed. Let's go to Dr. Sarah Jane first. Sarah, just a basic question about Delta-8 THC. Um, is it a controlled substance in the academic laboratory or can you purchase it by the crystallized kilo from, you know, shady biomass websites? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yes, Delta-8 is a Schedule One substance. <clears throat> so if you go onto a website of one of the, you know, well-known chemical manufacturers, Sigma Aldridge, Cayman Chemicals, uh, you will see Schedule One designation for Delta Eight THC, um, and you know if if you go to one of these hemp companies that send me fifty emails a day to see if I want to buy any of their hemp derived cannabinoids, my guess is that some of them will tell you that it's not scheduled. Uh, a recent one that contacted me a couple of weeks ago. Um, is deeming any of those cannabinoids to be scheduled. So I think you'll probably see a wide range of answers in sort of that, um, you know, hemp space. But as far as the major manufacturers, uh, Delta 8 THC is still, as well as CBD and all of the other cannabinoids are still schedule one. Tough, but true. You know, I, I like that. No amount of wishful thinking will change the fact that these are Schedule One compounds when we get down to sort of brass tacks and very serious research. Uh, Jason, public health perspective here. Um, what are your thoughts on Delta 8 THC? Is this a good novel product for the industry? Why might this be healthy for the industry? 
Well, product diversification, it's a, it's a key strategy in, in any industry, but my concerns are that issues can arise when novel products are made available to consumers before adequate research is, is conducted into their safety profile. And I think with Delta 8 THC, I don't know if we are aware of potential long-term effects from regular consumption of that cannabinoid. You know, we can look at examples from the food industry, trans fats or Olestra. These are great examples of kind of food science miracles that, you know, later on we found that they had really bad side effects. So I don't think I learn from the mistakes made in other industries and make sure that we're not putting the, the cart in front of the horse, so to say. Those are those are great points. Just because we know a fair amount about the toxicology and relative safety of THC and CBD, which are both FDA approved in some form, doesn't mean that everything else on the plant will be just as welcomed into the pharmacopoeia, just as you know, just as safe, just as non-toxic. Um, those are those are great things. Um, you know, Nigam, you do a lot of consulting and advising in the industry. I'm sure you get a lot of questions. You get people wanting to formulate products with Delta 8 THC companies asking you all the time, you know, what's the hottest new cannabinoid we should be looking at? I found this article to be a little confusing, but what are your thoughts? Yeah. So a couple thoughts. One is that in the regulated market in California, uh, you can buy it. Uh, there's um, one company in particular, that's kind of a leader in the space. Uh, that produces it and um, when you say you know, buy it what do you mean I mean buy it in a uh, marijuana dispensary I'm using the word marijuana to clarify this is not from hemp this is not a, this is uh, a licensed of CBD. operator yep. exactly California cannabis license operator so um, there uh, so so it's available um, and it's interesting that even in the regulated market uh, the awareness of Delta 8 is, is going up. It's, it's a little bit of a hot commodity, even in that market. And you're right on the uh, formulation side, it is fairly common in the year 2020 folks wanting to incorporate that into their products that they're planning on releasing within the regulated market. Um, I also have heard kind of peripherally about folks in the unregulated in the in the hemp space going after it so um you know this is a very pertinent topic and and actually just uh, i want to read a quote uh, from the article that really stood out to me it is also fairly clear that the 2018 farm bill did not intend to legalize any form of cannabis that gets users high so to me it's it's this moral thing it's this um uh, you know, I could go it's, on. It's but, the uh, little known eleventh commandment: uh, "Thou shall not be euphoric." Um, I think that's it's a little. Yeah, there is a bit of a stigma on that. We uh, agree that there is a little bit of a struggle when we talk about things like intoxication or euphoria. Um, some people, you know, list that as a side effect. Other people list that as a therapeutic effect. Um, it, it is a little confusing. Um, but you know, one of the things I always kind of liked about the cannabis world is wherever there is like the least amount of information, people seem to jump to the highest possible potential application. Um, you know, I'm only really aware of one clinical study with Delta 8 THC done in children in like the late 80s, or early 90s. And it was just a, an observational pediatric study. That's really all we have about it. And to me, it's like looking at the surface of Venus for the first time and you see clouds. You're like, oh, clouds, there must be a jungle. And if there's a jungle, there's got to be dinosaurs. So there's dinosaurs on Venus. Um, so, you know, while we think, <laughs> while we think Delta 8 is really promising, you know, I, I like how we're kind of, you know, it, it is promising, but we have some more information there before we can really support and understand it. Well, so let's move on to another interesting area um, where we might need more some consumer protections or maybe even good standards. And I want to talk about something that's either a biotech breakthrough or maybe nature still does it better. And that is uh, an article reported by MassiveSci.com about yeasts that are being engineered to make psilocybin. Now, I am almost excited about this story as it is a common point 
um, for, you know, biosynthesis is very common across industries. You know, you think of a drug, whether it's antibiotics or opioids or cannabinoids, you, you, this is a story that keeps coming up in industry. So the, um, the article reports that in one of the experimental groups, they tried different yeasts, E. coli, a fancy expensive yeast, and then baker's yeast, which I assume is that thing I see at the corner store um, for cooking. Uh, but the group's final production yield was about 600 milligrams per liter of psilocybin and about another 600 milligrams per liter of psilocin, which is what the body turns psilocybin into, and then it goes around in its uh, business in the human brain. Although, um, you know, this wasn't a very high yield. It was relatively inexpensive compared to the other methods using Baker's yeast that's engineered to produce psilocybin. However, there's a lot of limitations, right? They lost half their product to this method or their target product. Um, it's possible that the experimental conditions they were working with weren't ideal. Maybe they mimicked the human gut too much or too little. Um, and when the group tried to control things like the pH of the experiment, they still produced the same high levels of psilocin. Um, the article reports novel chemicals are being made by this biotech method. So the question kind of for the group um, and anyone is welcome to uh, comment here is, I wonder about the safety and consistency when, when scaling something like this up, you know, with, with bathtub psilocybin manufacturers. I mean, I don't think that's that far off. You know, psilocybin has, there's, you can buy books about how to do home cultivation of mushrooms. It's a big part of, you know, that world right now. But, you know, what about, what are some of the sort of, product safety concerns here? Is it, is it similar to what we might expect for making synthetic cannabinoids with, with yeast? Uh, Nigam, what are your thoughts? I just want to kind of clarify for our listeners that, because, uh, you know, I hear you say this term, bathtub psilocybin, and, and I see why you're saying that. Um, you know, obviously there's an issue with other drugs and home manufacture of other drugs, for example, methamphetamine, stuff like that, right? So point well taken, but just, just as a point of clarity uh, for the listeners, that um, traditionally when we're talking about psilocybin, that's coming from a certain type of mushrooms. Now, there are folks doing research on extraction of uh, psilocybin from those mushrooms for having a more controlled um, and consistent substance for therapeutic uses, but um, there's some hurdles there. The second thing is that there are synthetic Synthetic routes, wholly synthetic chemistry routes. I mean, you start in a flask in a laboratory and you end in a flask in a laboratory to make psilocybin. But this thing uh, that Jehan was talking about from the study is a whole different thing where you're using uh, E. coli or yeast cells to produce it. So um, back to your uh, bathtub thing. I'm not too worried about people becoming experts in synthetic biology and understanding how to program yeast cells in their home. Uh, now, I, I would almost say that the others are of greater concern. Um, you know, we, we've talked before about the legal landscape where people or where certain jurisdictions, Denver, Oakland, um, currently are decriminalizing mushrooms, but they're not creating an infrastructure for people to uh, legally cultivate it, right? And then you uh, have, have another thing where chemists who are, let's call them unregulated, who are doing a synthetic route, maybe that's of a concern, but I'm not too worried about amateur synthetic biologists currently. I think that's a good point because maybe when regulators are looking at this, that might be their concern is, well, uh, if this if the genie gets out of the bottle, then people will be making psilocybin wishes all day long. You know, I, I think much like, um, you know, in other industries, you know, like cannabis, we've heard these discussions. So Jason, you know, we know about bioengineering companies in the cannabis space. Do you see some parallels between those companies and what's being reported here? Yeah, absolutely. I think that uh, we see bioengineering companies, Tiwanot is one that comes to mind. They've uh, developed bi uh, microorganisms to produce novel cannabinoids that would normally exist in minute amounts in cannabis flowers. So <clears throat> I mean, in order to research some of those cannabinoids that we know very little about, that's really the only way to get enough of them unless you want to extract it out of you know, thousands of pounds of, of cannabis. Um, not There's the other side of this too, is that you can create an extremely pure 
isolated compound through these methods. Whereas, you know, while I definitely support, you know, cannabis in the matrix of all the other cannabis constituents when consuming it and supporting the, the entourage effect that can occur because of that for research purposes, especially when doing like clinical research, the, I, the investigational new drug application process would go a lot easier if you just had one compound you're trying to look at or five individual compounds that you know are individual that you want to look at together. And that's a lot harder to do with kind of more traditional cannabis extraction methods. And it's a lot more wasteful is what I would say as well. Mm. Could be very efficient to, to use microorganisms to produce a lot of, of just one cannabinoid or uh, psilocybin. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, Sarah, what are your thoughts on this coverage? So I, I think, um, you know, and I'm going to steal this article to track back to the last article a little bit uh, and tie the two together. But I think what Jason just said really highlights two of the most exciting reasons for hearing about, you know, creating some of these chemicals from a different vector, if that's the right word to use. I remember being at a cannabinoid reading meeting maybe a year or two ago and someone approaching me and saying, oh, you know, we can grow cannabinoids and yeast and, you know, so the, the reasons why that's exciting Jason pointed out, there are some cannabinoids that I want to study in the laboratory that are going to be extraordinarily expensive because they're in such, such low levels in the plant. And also this is a way to synthesize a pure chemical uh, for research. I think sometimes what gets mixed up is uh, when I talk to the public and people will say, well, it'll be better this way. And it brings me back to all of my irritations about hemp and the false narrative that it creates. You know, people ask me all the time, well, I heard the CBD is better from hemp um, than from <laughs> cannabis, um, you know, and, and is synthetic. And companies asking me, you know, if I synthesized CBD, would that be better? So I think with, when we talk about that, it's very important to be specific about what is good or better about it, but what is exactly the same, which is the chemical structure and the pharmacology. And so that brings me back to the first article in the, dis the discussion about what is synthetic, uh, you know, what is a cannabinoid? Uh, you know, the Schedule One designation was based on the chemical structure. It wasn't even based on abuse liability or else CBD and CBG and some of these other phytocannabinoids would have never been Schedule One. So the designation was based on chemistry and that has not changed one bit, except for this weird loophole about CBD extracted from hemp. And, you know, I guess I was born without the conspiracy theory gene. So I, I don't think what was mentioned in the previous article was that, you know, going after things like Delta-8 is some way for the DEA to shut down the hemp industry. Uh, I just think it's more laziness and not having spent enough time on this legislation and understanding what in the world people were voting on when they made up hemp and hemp-derived CBD and less than 0.3%. So I think it's just, you know, people moved too soon to pass legislation that had a whole bunch of implications that nobody thought about, and we just need to spend a lot more time unraveling this. And I think we need to stop thinking about scheduling plants and animals and scheduling chemicals. Uh, I think that would be a big help too. It's a very good point and certainly would create some stability for those biotech companies in this space if they knew where the ropes were in terms of those chemical entities. Well, we could spend all day talking about the manufacturing of Schedule 1 products, but we have one more news story today, and it's a pop science article about depression and suicidal ideation reduced after psychedelic usage. And this was um, a popular science article I found on bigthink.com. And this provided coverage of a recently completed clinical research into depression and suicide related issues. The author of the article contends that during a time when rates of anxiety, depression, and suicide are rising, a return to psychedelic rituals can help chip away at the frustration and confusion of this moment. These substances have been used for millennia to 
allegedly keeps societies intact. Such ceremonies are sorely needed right now. Um, the author points to Dr. Robin Carhart-Harris, the head of the Center for Psychedelic Research at Imperial College London, who's published nearly a uh, hundred studies on psychedelics. And this recent article in Frontiers in Psychiatry found that the effects of psychedelics are associated with decrease in the severity of depression and suicidal ideation. So just some quick notes about this study. Um, you know, the article itself included two studies with 358 volunteers. Each one filled out questionnaires about their levels of depression. Um, and also, uh, you know, one's openness to experience and engage in behaviors that are congruent with one's values. They took part in either a ceremonial psychedelic consumption, such as an ayahuasca ritual or non-ceremonial usage, and then were followed up two weeks and four weeks later. So the report shows some promising data, quoting from researchers, uh, quote, across two separate studies, we found significant decreases in depression severity and suicidal ideation four weeks after psychedelic use. We found that the use of psychedelics was associated with decreases in experiential avoidance two weeks later and was sustained for at least four weeks. Now, researchers in this space continue to face a, a difficulty of implementing a control group. Um, you know, we have discussed in previous episodes the difficulty with the placebo effect and how just being in the ceremony can cause a placebo effect. So um, some studies do find that the placebo effect is very, very relevant. Um, you know, we, th we think about psychedelics in terms of context and setting. Uh, that might be an important part, uh, important factor. So a large barrier to this research moving forward will, of course, be financial support from pharmaceutical companies, um, as well as others who might have vested interest in this. So did the article do justice for this topic? That's, I guess, sort of, um, you know, what do you guys think of the coverage um, of this so far? Yeah, I'm happy to start it off. So, because I, and I think that's a great way to ask the question. And I was thinking about it that way last night, as we, you know, go through reviewing some of these articles, some of these publications uh, on the podcast here. And I, I almost feel like there's a, um, an, an enhancement, so to say, between the research and the title. And this is just a product of how, how media is, how people compete for attention. And I'm, I'm not saying anyone's special or I'm not demonizing anyone for doing that. Everyone does it. Everyone wants their article to get read. So, you know, the title is great. Depression and suicidal ideation reduced after psychedelic usage. Okay. But when we dig down into it, um, it was a survey. It was a, a self-reporting survey. Uh, there's a lot of details missing. So, and, and I think we see this a lot. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy people are studying this. I, I think what we see a lot is folks reporting in the kind of conclusion. Here are the, or the conclusion is, this is a good step and we need to learn more. So, you know, ha I'm happy to see it moving forward, obviously, but I'm not, I'm not, it's hard to put a ton of stake in it. And, and I just would, would say to, to listeners or people who are just getting into the space or who uh, aren't familiar with, um, how do we say, like being highly critical of published work to just read into it, you know, read the paper, who, who are the authors, what are, what are the, how is the study done? And, and, you know, they can obviously listen to the podcast and, and get some insights from, from us. Cause that's what we do here. So. <laughs> Excellent. One of the interesting things about this study was what they included and also what they excluded. So individuals had a variety of psychedelics uh, to choose from to be a part of the study. You know, LSD, ayahuasca, DMT, salvia divinorum, mescaline, psilocybin mushrooms, or ibogaine. But ketamine was excluded because it's not classically considered a hallucinogen. But then again, there's part of me that would argue that I don't know if really salvia divinorum should be in the same box as LSD. Uh, salvia lasts a much shorter time. Some of these psychedelics last a whole day, several hours. Um, you know, what do we think of this experimental design? Should they have limited it to maybe just LSD and, and psilocybin mushrooms? I just think of ayahuasca and what I've read about it, there's a great deal of purging involved. So 
you know, sometimes people wear diapers when they like take this product. So that's a completely different experience, I think, than, you know, inhaling some salvia divinorum or something like that. Um, you're not going to get that level of purging. You know, Jason, what do you think uh, about sort of their experimental design and some of the choices they've made here? I think from the specifically uh, the duration of the experience, one thing I'll say is that uh, time isn't really a, sometimes time really isn't a thing during those experiences. And I think, you know, crystalline DMT, for example, is a relatively short experience, maybe 10, 15 minutes, but while you're in it, it's decades, it's lifetimes. And uh, salvia, I think it can be the same way uh, with the consumption of enough of it. Uh, that was one of the, when I was younger, that was uh, one of those compounds you could buy at uh, smoke shops. And it was totally legal. You could buy, you know, the 100X salvia. And I don't know how safe it was, but I definitely experienced some very profound, uh, you know, hallucinations when after consuming that. So, you know, I did try salvia once in my psychonaut days, but I did not feel anything. At least I didn't remember it. Maybe I spaced out for those few minutes, <laughs> but I, I, I really, it had like, it was very disappointing experience. I've read so much about it culturally and the spirituality and was like, oh, this divining spirit that is like a shared um, hallucination that people talk about. Um, it just, you know, it was very disappointing, I guess. Nothing happened. Um, but you know, I, I might have been, gone to the same corner store in, in San Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Sarah, you know, they talk about the effects, um, you know, being lasting four weeks or, or that, you know, after four weeks, there still was a noticeable benefit. Is that impressive <laughs> for a drug? I mean, I would think you'd want to see it six months or a year out, you want to see an effect, but, but maybe I'm being too critical here. Yeah, I would say it's actually the opposite. It's interesting. Some um, pharmacological agents get criticized because you have to take them every day for the rest of your lives. And it's weird for me to think like, I have high blood pressure. I know I'm going to have to take uh, my lisinopril every day for the rest of my life. And, it, you know, other than remembering to take it, it's really not that big of a deal. Whereas for other things, you know, in the substance abuse field, it's often criticized. You know, you you know, give a test compound in the clinic for somebody who's, um, you know, withdrawn from a drug, and then you see how long it takes for them to relapse if you've only given the test medication once. And I always think, well, that's not very fair. Uh, you know, we shouldn't have different standards for the treatment of different indications. You have to balance the safety of exposing someone to different classes of compounds um, you know, you may not want to take prednisone every day for the rest of your life, but some people chose to do that when that was really the only treatment available for arthritis. Um, you know, There's a so really funny song about prednisone that this artist wrote um, called The Lighter Side of Sickness. She went like had like <laughs> kidney failure and a bunch of strokes and she had to take a bunch of prednisone. And she like sings this song about it, like making your face fat and your like hair fall out and like all these it's horrible terrible. side effects. Um, but yet, you know, the, the, there's a cost benefit analysis mm -hmm. there. Do you want to eventually have a higher quality of life? Mm -hmm. um, but that, you know, uh, I can only imagine if psilocybin made your hair fall out, there'd be a, a lot bigger pause to people using it, but sorry yeah. to interrupt, please continue. No, that's right. Yeah. And I also just wanted to uh, build on a few things that Jason said that really stuck out to me. Um, you know, and, and what you, uh, what your reply was, Jehan, is, you know, individual differences are so important. So many things we're talking about with the psychedelics remind me of everything I talked about with people about cannabinoids 10 or 15 years ago. Um, you know, I know some people don't experience very positive responses to cannabis, whereas other people sing its praises. And so some people, it's difficult to say, you take cannabis for anxiety, it makes me, you know, go into full on paranoia mode. And for psychedelics, it's the same. And when you talk about the different types of psychedelics, no, we shouldn't publish a study where, you know, everybody took a different psychedelic and tried to, I mean, not that we can't talk about what the shared experience is, but again, we need to move forward on controlled clinical studies and not 
assume that every drug that we call a hallucinogen, and as we've mentioned before, there's other drugs that, you know, is ketamine an hallucinogen? Is cannabis a hallucinogen? Uh, you know, some people might say yes. Um, you know, so I think, again, being as specific as we can about these things, uh, the, the value of a control group is just enormous for all of these kinds of therapies. You know, why does AA work for people with alcohol use disorder? What is it about it? Is it the ritual of the program? You know, what is the most important component? Is it the strong belief system? So mm. there are so many different possibilities here of why people are experiencing positive results, which is super exciting, but we have a, a little bit of a long road ahead of us to really tease apart this and see how we can best take advantage of it. I, I agree that that is a beautiful way to say that. Um, you know, I have a problem with randomized controlled trials is that they are, you know, an artificial human constructed phenomena and they're great at capturing some types of data, but there might be other factors where maybe they're too antiquated or maybe they don't quite fit the medicine we're studying. You know, Jason, what are other potential factors or things that might make a study about psychedelics different? Well, I think I really have been, I want to mention the thinking about this, uh, the placebo effect, right? And this kind of, this article kind of presents it more so the effects of being in that ceremony that could actually create some type of effect on the participant rather than the hallucinogen itself. But, you know, I, I'll relate this back to the side of, even though ketamine is not, was ex explicitly excluded from this as a hallucinogen, uh, I helped conduct a randomized control trial to look at the effects of ketamine on multiple sclerosis related fatigue. And we had to use an active placebo. We used midazolam, which is a short acting benzo. And because we couldn't have the participants know that obviously they weren't getting the ketamine, right? They had to feel something. So I wonder in, these types of studies, if it ever did get to a point where uh, they were a randomized controlled trial, you know, ceremony with, you know, ayahuasca or something, what, what, what would be the right active placebo to use? And maybe like, what would be the findings if they both groups experienced the same thing? And it was just simply being in a ceremony like that and kind of maybe a, something like the, the sitter, like the shaman you know, is, is actually guiding them through and guiding them through an experience like that allows them maybe just to kind of let go of control. And maybe that in itself has a profound effect on some, on some people. So, but I, I think I, I really like that they did mention the role of the sitter in, in the second study um, where uh, they were saying that, that organizations like the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies was training psychedelic therapists you know, which essentially I would say is a, is a sitter, you know, and okay. I think that's, I think that's so important. I think that's really part of the experience that when we look at what these ceremonies have been for, you know, hundreds, thousands of years, right? Native communities have had something like this. Um, the, the shaman or the sitter was always a important part of it. So I think we need to take note of that. Wow. Uh, group, you guys have made some terrific points. I, I really like this point about the, the sitter or the shaman, but you know, before we go on another segment, just to give you a little mind munchy, a little food for thought, does that mean we need a placebo shaman as well? One that is a real shaman and one that isn't. Would that make a difference? Think about it. We're going to take a short break and we'll come back with our rapid fire science. Welcome back. We're now going to go into our next segment, Rapid Fire Science. We'll go around providing some brief commentary and discussion about the following articles, and away we go. So our first article is entitled, Persisting Reductions in Cannabis, Opioid, and Stimulant Misuse After Naturalistic Psychedelic Use, an online survey published in Frontiers in Psychiatry. So this is observational data and preliminary studies suggest that um, the serotonergic activity of psychedelics may hold potential in treating a variety of substance use disorders, including opioid use disorder. So 
this article basically aimed to capture and describe and analyze self-reported cases in which a naturalistic psychedelic use was followed by cessation or reduction in other substances. The research conducted an anonymous online survey of individuals reporting um, on their cannabis opioid or stimulant list use following a psychedelic use in a non-clinical setting. So they had 444 respondents, mostly from the USA. Um, average participant reported four and a half years of problematic substance use. Um, and most reported taking a moderate or high dose of LSD or psilocybin following a significant reduction. Um, before the psychedelic experience, uh, apparently 96% met the substance use disorder criteria, whereas only 27% met the criteria afterwards. So participants rated their psychedelic experience as highly meaningful and insightful with 28% endorsing psychedelic associated changes in life priorities or values as facilitating reduced substance misuse. Greater psychedelic dose, insight, mystical type effects, and personal meaning of experiences were associated with greater reductions in drug consumption. What are our thoughts on this? You know, I want to ask you, Sarah, a question here because, you know, when we think about programs where people are, are getting, whether it's you know, alcohol or, or narcotics or anything they're doing that's, you know, representing a use disorder, I feel that somebody's just talking to someone about it makes you sort of reduce it. Like if you're doing a survey and you're like, wow, I've checked, you know, five on the scale of one to five on all these things, maybe I'm using too much. So, you know, am I, am I overweighting the value or the factor of just having to self-report your use as being sort of a primer to reduce use, if that makes sense? No, I think that's extremely important. And, you know, most, most studies where we've looked, tried to look at the success rates of different pharmacological interventions, you always see an increase if the behavioral intervention is added on to it. So I, th I don't think we can emphasize enough how much the behavioral component is. And, you know, I would, and I would say sort of diving deeper into that, you know, probably the, beha the best behavioral therapy is one where people feel really comfortable telling on themselves. <laughs> and, um, you know, and, you know, again, things like Alcoholics Anonymous and, you know, going into a room and telling on yourself and hearing a bunch of other people telling on themselves is a, a very, you know, powerful factor. Um, yeah, so I, so I think it's important to, you know, try to always tease apart what is the drug effect and, and what is the social effect. But I think the, the most intriguing thing about this article is uh, relating it to what we know from animal studies. You know, so I spend my time thinking about rats and mice and their drug use. And we've it's a known- big problem in New York. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we can treat them in the laboratory. And one of the ways in which we can treat substance abuse in a rodent is with serotonergics. And we've known for decades that we can affect uh, drug-taking behavior in rats with different drugs that you know interact with the serotonin system. One of the fascinating things about that is we don't know whether those rats are experiencing any psychedelic experience. Furthermore, some the biggest class of abused drugs that rats don't like are psychedelics. So if you rate how much rats like drugs, uh, they love nicotine, they love cocaine, they love psychostimulants, they like opioids, they're not really keen on THC, and they do not like psychedelics. And from an evolutionary standpoint, they probably don't want 15 minutes of their life to feel like two decades, <laughs> like Jason was explaining <laughs> before. Uh, you know, that's not very, um, you know, it's not a good survival technique to sit around and, and trip out in the field. Um, so it's one way sort of, to me, that's fascinating to tease apart, you know, are psychedelics working in people potentially because of the psychedelic experience? Or is it just interacting with the serotonin system? Is this, you know, treating a chemical imbalance or is it treating a spiritual conflict? Um, I don't know, uh, probably a little bit of both. Uh, but, you know, it's like 
two really cool fields need to merge. I'm thrilled that really well-known clinical researchers are spending a lot of time investigating psycho, uh, psychedelics for psychostimulant or for substance abuse disorders. And we need to get on the page with the animal researchers, put that all together and tease apart the super big picture approach to the really um, minimalized approach. Fantastic. So I'm going to ask you one follow-up question and then I'll open it up to the group. And then after that, we can go into the next study. But I want to ask you about the former thing you mentioned, interactions with the serotonergic system. Now, um, you know, you can go and look up the effects, say, of psilocybin, and you will learn things like, oh, it increases dopamine in the basal ganglia. That's one of the things it can do. But cocaine can also increase dopamine in certain parts of the brain, as can THC. So could you comment a little bit on maybe dopamine or brain regions and as people are trying to understand why some drugs um, you know, have a good dopamine effect and why some have a bad dopamine effect? Is there a, maybe a way for, for the listeners to understand what's happening there? I think the dopamine effect is always good. <laughs> I think uh, people are always gonna be happy with, with more dopamine and their reward circuitry. The thing about serotonin is there's like 20 serotonin receptor subtypes. Like I don't even try to teach it to the graduate students. Just like put up a horrible looking slide with all of the serotonin receptor subtypes. Some of them are ionotropic. Some of them are metabotropic. Some are inhibitory. Some are excitatory. They're all over the place. So, you know, that's the challenge of trying to figure out. And the, most of the pharmacological tools we have in the laboratory are not selective enough. We have one serotonin drug, well, we call it a serotonin 2C. That might mean that it's just like a little bit more selective for that receptor subtype than others. So we have a massive selectivity issue in the laboratory to try to tease apart the different serotonergic effects. And then you have a drug like, you know, psilocybin or LSD with all of this, you know, polypharmacology. Um, so yeah, I would say all the dopamine is good. Some of the serotonin is good. Some is not. And I think again, with the individual differences, some people like the serotonin effect and some people don't. It's a great explanation. Um, and what I'm hearing is there may be only two things in life we really love and that's serotonin and dopamine. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, before we, we head off to the next article, uh, Negum, did you want to follow up? Yeah, so I, I think um, one thing you know what I'm going to say is that the study was the participants came from posting on the MAPS website and on the Arrowhead website. Have you experienced reduction in addictive drugs by using psychedelics? And the people who clicked on it are the people who are in this study. So um, the selection process was not is that what you call a biased study? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Sarah, for, for bringing up that official term, bias. Yeah. I stopped drinking my beer while I was filling out the survey. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, Jehan, this, this isn't about alcohol or tobacco. This is only about hard drugs. Oh. oh. Because well, alcohol oh. is not a hard drug, and neither is tobacco, so watch yourself. <laughs> Anyways, but, but to be more serious... Um, I just wanted to point out that selection bias and they said it themselves in the, in the article. The other thing um, that, that I think kind of speaks to that too, kind of speaks to the, Oh wow. I don't even know how to say it. The, um, the I guess just speaks to the bias mm -hmm. is that in, in Jehan, you said it in the beginning that they're reporting greater psychedelic dose is associated with greater reduction in drug consumption. So just think about that in the context of what I just said. And then on top of that, um, where is the scale? Like, where does it stop? I, I guess what I'm saying is it's not linear. You don't just infinitely increase your amount of psychedelics and like infinitely decrease the intake of, of hard drugs. So um, I, I, I would say that if you are immobilized, you will be decreasing. <laughs> I mean, there's a joke we used to say is how do you stop people from using drugs? You use something like curare and just paralyze them and they will have a reduction in drug use. So, so there could be sort of a, an exchange there where they already have this system stimulated and it's fulfilling 
the whatever they were using the other substance for maybe but it is a big bias to select it's not maybe a representative sampling of the population if they reached out to reddit or twitter they might have got a completely different profile or, or sampling so i think that's a good thing to, for everyone to think about as we look at these studies do they represent uh an accurate swath of the population does it does it represent what we might see in, in, a, in a random population setting like if we just grabbed everyone on a subway car in new york would we see a similar effect so um hearing no further comments study passes and we will move on to our next article this article is, is a little bit dated um, but it's relevant nonetheless it was published in 2017 by the international journal of drug policy it's one of my favorite studies. Um, it went in my top, you know, top list of studies for 2017. But public health researchers explored whether consumers understood labeling information on cannabis edible products or edible cannabis products. And they conducted 12 focus groups with 94 adult consumers of, uh, and non-consumers of edibles in Denver and Seattle to collect information on their use and understanding of labeling information. Specifically, they asked participants about the usefulness, the attractiveness, the ease of comprehension, the relevancy, and acceptability of the label information. The focus groups revealed that participants have some concerns about the labeling of edibles. In particular, they're concerned about there being too much information. They're just not going to read it, all the information on there. So basically, that's already a barrier. There's too much information. Consumers feel they're not going to read the label. There's no obvious indication at the time of the study was completed that the product contained marijuana and information on consumption advice is not clear. And participants in both locations, both consumers and non-consumers, suggested that education in a variety of formats, such as web and video-based education, would be useful in informing consumers about edibles. So in conclusion, the focus group findings suggested that improvements are needed in labeling of edibles to prevent unintentional ingestion among non-adult users and help ensure proper dosing and safe consumption. Now, I know this study was published in another time in our society, way back in a crazy time known as 2017, and a lot has changed. But I want to go uh, to Jason. You, know, you published uh, this year, a very as lead author, a very recent overview of all the universal symbols I am really interested to hear your thoughts about this article. Well, I really did enjoy reading this paper um, and I agree with a lot of the conclusions. Uh, like you said, this was a nice reminder about how far the cannabis industry has come in the past five years. Uh, I think even though it was published in 2017, the data was actually collected at the end of 2015. But I really appreciated how the authors tied their findings back to more conventional consumer facing products. And you know, they utilize methods that are used in other industries to collect data about product labels. I want to point out that we still have this unique opportunity to learn from some of the issues seen in other industries, like the food or the prescription drug industry. And through clear evidence-based policies, we can help the cannabis industry and its associated products evolve in a way that empowers people to make educated decisions about what they choose to consume. The study itself, the, the strengths I thought were really that the sample was well characterized. Uh, the inclusion and exclusion criteria was intended to prevent anyone you know, employed by a cannabis business or who would otherwise be abnormally familiar with cannabis products because of their line of work uh, from participating. There were varied focus groups. So the participants consisted of either users, experimenters, or non-users. And there were criteria you know, to, to group those people together. Uh, so the participants had different levels of familiarity with cannabis products. And based on the methods identified, the authors asked appropriate non-leading questions, which I think is so important. Um, the major weakness though, they only showed one product label in each state. Uh, I think they should have shown multiple products, product labels with different label layouts because to be honest with you, uh, they could have just picked a, just a poorly made label, a poorly structured label. So. Um, you know, and I think a bigger thing would be that the authors could have compared what different participants said they liked or disliked about the different, different labels among the groups and even compared between states. Like, are there, is there a very common theme between, even though the two states' labels are completely different and they show different ones within the states, 
I mean, are there similarities to what people liked and disliked? And, and of course, they did find those here. And, and you had mentioned a couple of those. I'm just going to kind of, you know, uh, bring those up again, the kind of key public health takeaways. Uh, so cannabis product labels need to make it extremely clear that the product contains cannabis in order to prevent accidental consumption. I think it's just so important with edible cannabis products because they're not always kept in their, you know, in their full container. So if you have all of your warning statements on the outside and then you have a bottle, a small jar of cannabis infused honey on the inside that just has very little information on it. Well, someone might keep that little jar of honey without the outer box in their cabinet next to their regular honey. And you know, who knows, someone walks up, if it's not clear that that's a cannabis honey, they could be having some, some really strong tea. So, I mean, you know, these are things that have happened and not that I think many people have the chance of dying or anything, but you might be in for a bad day if you have some meetings or a podcast and you put right. the wrong honey in a cup. Yeah. If, you, if your grandma's like, I'm just going to have my decaffeinated green tea and do my Tai Chi this morning, um, <laughs> you know, it's going to be a different experience and it may not be the one that the person was hoping for. And that can be an adverse, you know, event. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and I think that, you know, we mentioned the excess label information, that, that, that is definitely a problem. And it's common across different consumer facing products. The, the authors actually pointed out uh, by citing a lot of other studies from like the FDA and other, other groups where, you know, it's a excess information is a major, reasons why, major reason why consumers don't read food product labels and prescription drug labels even. Um, you know, and in this study, of course, cannabis product labels. Um, I think another big issue that they pointed out was uh, cannabis products need to identify, clearly identify what a serving size is. Um, you know, it's again, another common issue seen in the food industry. People are often amazed at how much sugar is in some foods and drinks that they consider healthy because serving sizes are not clear. Um, you know, no one is eating seven chips or a quarter of a cup of cereal and a, a serving size shouldn't be that. So it just, I mean, like that doesn't really make sense, right? Um, and I think the last thing I want to really bring up is, uh, you know, some participants suggested that warning statements should be expanded to include the, you know, potential side effects of overconsumption, as well as potential drug cannabis interactions. And I think that second point is very, very important. You seldom see any type of warning or even you know, information about potential drug cannabis interactions. And, you know, I think the literature does, <clears throat> excuse me, does has found really strong potential for drug cannabinoid interactions. I mean, we know THC, CBN, and CBD have been found to inhibit enzymes in the, you know, cytochrome P450, the CYP2C subfamily, and CYP2C9 is responsible for metabolizing the anticoagulant warfarin, which has a very narrow therapeutic index. So, you know, you could really see problems occurring if uh, someone who consumes warfarin also consumes cannabis. Um, but just to kind of bring it all back, uh, you know, I think it's really important to remember that label space is valuable real estate. So information should be prioritized based on its impact. States should mandate placement of important information like warning statements on the exterior surface of canvas products that require, you know, and maybe require large bold thought to use and less important information like this product was made with love, can be written on the inside of a peel-off label in tiny font. You know, I mean, I think that's what it's all about. It's about regulatory agencies prioritizing what they're going to require on these labels and where they are going to require it. Excellent points. I think you did a good job of covering that article for the entire group. Um, and, and unless anyone has any follow-up questions for Jason or comments, uh, Nigga, what would you like to add? I, I just have a, a quick one, and um, I, I always like alternate perspectives. So, Jason, I really uh, appreciate and respect what you're saying, and, and I think that's all extremely valid. But I just want to represent a, a different point of view briefly, which I, that just came to mind when I was reading this. As I was thinking, what about alcohol? Now, often people try to compare cannabis and alcohol for regulation purposes. I, it's not the same. I don't want it to be the same. But I'm just thinking about it. It's interesting, like on regulated uh, medicine prescriptions, it says don't combine with alcohol. They understand that. Uh, the point I'm trying to make is that they understand that alcohol is this cultural thing and there's a cultural understanding. There's not instructions on the alcohol bottle, right? Um, so I just kind of wanted to toss that out there that over time, 
I hope there will be a cultural understanding of cannabis and um, maybe it'll be something that there there's some parallel where it's understood that when people are taking uh, pharmaceutical medicines, they should be aware of how it interacts with cultural things. And eventually maybe cannabis will become a cultural thing. So that, that's what I want to say. And I, I totally agree with you when you say, you know, alcohol doesn't have that warning on it. I think the whole major point I'm trying to make with a lot of it in my paper and with what I pulled from this paper is that we should learn from the lessons, like the mistakes we made in other regulated industries, whether it be alcohol, whether it be tobacco, whether it be food. You know, there's a lot of problems that are occurring, a lot of human life that is lost because of kind of this lackadaisical attitude that, that our government has had towards properly regulating alcohol and tobacco and food. I mean, it took so long to even get warning statements on packages of cigarettes. You know, I mean, even though the data was there, it took a very long time. Um, so I think that we have, again, this opportunity right now to go about it the right way and, you know, make sure we're supporting public health. Thank you. Uh, Sarah, final thoughts for this article? Yeah, just <laughs> um, the, 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 the cultural component. I think I understand where you're coming from, Nigam, but, you know, with, with CBD, again, like the one thing I lose sleep over is the liver interactions with, with other drugs. And before it can be in people's cultural awareness, it needs to be in physicians and pharmacists' awareness. And it's, it's such an under-discussed and under-known issue right now that it'd be great if everybody knew that your cannabis honey could interact with your warfarin. Um, but, you know, un until the medical and, and doctor community, healthcare community knows that, I just, that, that's something that really concerns me. I think um, just like we were teeing up the placebo episode, I think we're <laughs> going to have to have a, a cultural implications episode because I'm um, so much to talk about, but I, but I absolutely appreciate your guys' perspective. So I, I, and I agree with that. Dig I think uh, a placebo focused episode, a cultural episode um, would be good. And I think even doing another dive into labeling. And I think we're going to put maybe Jason on the hot seat in a future episode to talk about his article and maybe some more facts from this one, but we're running out of time for the segment. So that'll about do it for the research discussion. We're going to take a short break and come back for our game for this episode. All right, welcome back to today's game. Today, our group will be playing for the grand prize of helping to expand scientific thought. We're going to play two out of three. I'll read a short paragraph or story at least once. Happy to read portions of the entire thing again. Hopefully it doesn't come to that. And then present the group with three facts from the story. Two of those facts are backed up by scientific data or true at the time of recording, while one is false or unsupported, um, basically made up usually in the form of something that sounds plausible. And yes, I make up the false item or copy something erroneous from someone else's work. After the present story, the group, which is all of you, go around stating which ones they think are true and why. The purpose of this game is to share how you think and analyze content, your, your critical thinking skills. We each bring a different background of experiences and can share insights that are unique from our own perspective. So it doesn't matter if you win or lose, it's how you think through the game. The title of today's two out of three story is A Role for Hemp in Early Warfare. So are you all ready? Yep. All yes. right. Here we go. We now shift our focus to learn how hemp was involved in waging war. Historically, hemp is considered the first agricultural war crop. Artifacts recovered from archaeological sites in China indicate that hemp fiber was used in early weapons construction. In the Wuxing Zongyao and other ancient Chinese texts, we learned that the military was significantly enhanced when they discovered that longbow and crossbow strings made of hemp fibers were much stronger than those made of bamboo. However, catapults with simple lever-operated mechanisms were the siege artillery par excellence in medieval China. However, hemp fiber was not an integral part of these large assault weapons since they had a number of tightly twisted elastic ropes of leather 
used to arm them. While the catapult has faded from use, hemp crossbow strings are still favored by hunters in southern China and northern Southeast Asia. Once again, hemp fiber plated an apparently minor yet ultimately important role in directing human history. In this case, adding efficiency and killing power to some of the tools of warfare, empowering ancient Chinese army, and possibly being an important factor in determining the outcome of key battles. Now, which of the following is supported by the data or is um, not accurate at the time of recording? Is it one, hemp crossbow strings are still favored by hunters in southwestern China and northeastern Southeast Asia to this day? Hemp fiber was not an integral part of large assault weapons? Or three, hemp is considered the first agricultural war cop. Okay, let's go to the... Let's go to the group who wants to share some thoughts or ask me any questions for clarification or if you need a hint. I, I've got a question, Jehan. <laughs> uh, for the third thing, uh, hemp being considered the first uh, agricultural war crop, is that like you, you got to feed the army? Is it, it's like you, is it for food or it's like for making weaponry? So, uh, that's a great question. So um, the ancient Chinese monarchs of old set aside large portions of land exclusively for hemp um, for the purposes of making fibers and textiles, many of which would be used in the, in the military, similar to how the U.S. in World War II started having everyone grow hemp again for parachutes and, and other materials. I think you're saying it's not for food. It's for materials. It's yeah, got it. Then that one sounds plausible, I think. So, Jason, yeah. So I'm going to say, can, can I say which one I think is not accurate? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the saying number two, so hemp fiber was not an integral part of large assault weapons. And in this case, it was the catapults. I think that that's false. And it's because catapults either going to need to have chain or they're going to have to have rope and to pull them back down and whatnot. So and to like strap whatever you want in. So I think hemp makes total sense. Hemp fiber could make rope that could be used to operate the catapults. So I think that's, that's the false one that you know hemp fiber was an integral part of, of large assault weapons like catapults back then. That, that's a good point. And there may, you know, can you think of other examples of hemp being used in a significant load bearing capacity, the ropes? I mean, well, like, uh, I mean, sails like that have uh, rope, hemp rope on them. I know, right? The ships, like the Mayflower, use hemp on the, the sails and the rope. And those, those are big sails and big, big ships. So maybe, but, you know, it wasn't the only fiber around at the time. I, I like how you're thinking about that. Does anyone Jayad, else? Yeah. Yeah. Can you repeat number one for me? So number one, hemp crossbow strings are still favored by hunters in southwestern China and north, northern Southeast Asia to this day. Okay, I'm going to, because I want to pick something different from Jason, just to mix it up, I'm going to say that that one is not true, because for the bows to be made from hemp, that would mean that they, it's legal to grow hemp in China. And I feel like China has really restrictive policies, like I think they even don't allow opioids as analgesics, so I'm going to say number one's not true. Okay, so, uh, you know, that is a good point to consider. Um, uh, hemp is, uh, China's really big. So, I, you <laughs> so know, you're that, saying I'm wrong. I'm not saying you're <laughs> wrong. I think they're all right. I forget which one is the false one. <laughs> but so we're saying, you know, maybe number one isn't true because where are these hunters going to get the hemp fiber? easily to make these commercial products. Uh, maybe it's one thing if it's being turned into paper or clothing, but maybe some of these other uses are, are not even allowed in, in China right now. Megam, um, any, any thoughts on these? So one you think is true, one you think might be made up? I, it, this is just like a gut feel. I kind of think that they're not using hemp fiber in crossbows in 2020 to hunt. <laughs> Uh, I just, it just seems, I, I don't know much about that region or uh, traditions there, but it just, I don't know, it, that, that one seems a little bit far out. The other ones, I think seem like, I think Jason made great points about 
uh, use of hemp in other parts of ancient weaponry, not necessarily like the, the leather binding on the catapult. And also hemp considered the first ag war crop. I, I kind of like that narrative. I, I think I'm, I think I'm going with what I like here, but um, I'm going to, I'm going to vote uh, with Sarah. Maybe the uh, crossbow thing's not true. Okay. Well, so this is what we're hearing or what I'm hearing is there seems to be a consensus that number three is, is probably backed up and in a re reasonably supported by the data. Um, number one and number two is where we're having uh, some critical thinking coming in, right? Well, we know that there is a history of, of hemp in used in bows and, and crossbows, but are they still used today? And the other one, were they used in things like catapults and siege weapons? So good thinking, everyone. I, I really like the way how, how you thought about those and taking those external factors in, like legal issues, um, practicality issues. Um, if it was used for this, why wouldn't it be used for something else? I think those are great ways to think about it. So it's now for the big reveal. So <laughs> for those of you who thought number three, hemp is considered the first agricultural war cop to be true. Perhaps you thought maybe that sounds a little too on the nose historically. Well, that's because it is true. It is absolutely on the nose and is considered to be largely the first agricultural war crop, uh, probably for China, which we have the oldest, most complete records for cultivation, cultivation of hemp for a specific purpose. Now, uh, hemp crossbow strings are still favored by hunters in southwest, uh, southwestern China and northern Southeast Asia. Now, it, you know, number two, or number one, sorry, about the crossbow strings, they sound a little too far-fetched, maybe a little too broad to be accurate. Well, that's because it is accurate. It is absolutely true. So traditional hunters, which is a, a word I left out of this, but hunters in general still get hemp bow strings made of hemp. And even if you go to like your archery supply store in the US and you look at arrows, they will actually have a piece of hemp twine that connects the point of the arrow to the shaft of the arrow. So hemp is still used, um, you know, to fasten blades or, you know, the tips of arrows. And it's still, you can still get hemp string um, as well for the bow. Which, Does it have any Delta 8 THC in it? <laughs> <laughs> it, it, you know, it, it kind of self extracts it as you pull the string back. It just flies right off. Um, <laughs> yes, you need a good amount of oil uh, to, to, to rosin up the bow. Kidding, I'm kidding. Um, so that means that number two, hemp fiber was not an integral part of large assault weapons, was a strange exception to the rule because it was a made-up exception. Hemp was used in ancient catapults, and that was one of the things that really made the early Chinese army successful. And they, they did combine the leather straps with hemp rope to um, create this really great mechanical system. Um, and, and yeah, hemp was obviously identified as being able to take quite a load. You think of the size of those transport ships and the sails, you know, moving something along at 30 miles an hour that weighed several tons. Yeah, that's that's a lot of load bearing that, that these fibers were taking. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, I'd like to thank, you know, Nigam, Jason, Sarah for your time on the show. That was fantastic. I'd like to thank all our listeners. Thanks for clicking, tapping, swiping, or however you are listening to this. We appreciate it. And thank you to our trusty audio engineer. This episode was edited and mixed by Joe Leonardo. Thank you, everyone.